0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Hello, all. Welcome to the Global Impacts of COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Wendy Hunter Barker, and I'm an assistant dean here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Today, we're going to talk about domestic unrest in the US, but before we do that, I thought I'd talk a little bit about how GPS collaborates with our partners around the world. With a historical emphasis on the Pacific, you can see we have many partners in China, Japan, and Korea, as well as Mexico, Chile, and Brazil. These partnerships allow the free exchange of students and faculty for short visits, and the flow of intellectual capital that comes with close collaborations. But we are expanding this list every day, And as our faculty research focuses on places like India and Africa, the EU, this list continues to grow. The trend is broadened by the regional scope of the school that's evident in this slide, which outlines a snapshot of some of the field work faculty are involved in. You can see the myriad of studies around the Atlantic and Indian oceans. One special multi-partner collaboration we are excited to discuss is the new International Institute for Economic Diplomacy. Together with the OECD, the International Economic Forum of the Americas, and the three universities you can see here, this joint effort aims to substantially increase the body of knowledge around economic diplomacy and to offer professional and graduate training from the top practitioners in the field. But today, as promised, we're sticking closer to home. We have an amazing group of speakers, the majority of whom are editors for the award-winning blog, Political Violence at a Glance which is supported by the UC Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, which is housed here at GPS. Barbara, if you're ready, I will turn off my share screen and turn this over to you.
0: Thank you, Wendy. Hello, everyone. We're thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. If I wasn't actually on this panel, I would be uh, listening in on it because I don't know what we're going to say or what my panelists are going to say, but it's going to be a really interesting hour. Um, I'm uh, a political scientist here at, at GPS, um, uh, and what I'm going I'm to be the moderator of this panel. Um, it's called uh, COVID and domestic unrest in the United States. Basically, my job is to introduce the speakers, um, to launch the discussion with um, a question, and then to gather questions from the audience and pose those to our panelists. So let me introduce the people we have here. Some of you may know them. They're all quite famous. Some of you may not. And you should know how special they are. I'm going to start with Erica Chenoweth. Um, She is one of the world's leading experts um, on civil resistance. Actually, she is the world's leading expert. I shouldn't qualify that. Um, She holds an endowed chair in human rights and international affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School. In 2013, she was named one of the top 100 global thinkers. Um, she is probably the most perfect person to talk about what's happening in the United States today in terms of um, the potential for resistance, the potential for violence, um, and what we can do about it. Christian Davenport is, um, uh, he is one of the leading experts on social movements. He is the world's leading expert on uh, government repression. He is a um, political scientist at the University of Michigan. He's also an associate at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, Norway. I was going to tell you about some of the books he's written, but he has written so many of them um, that it would take up too much time. So Google Christian Davenport, that's all I have to say. Joe Young is, um, he's a political scientist and he is chair of the political science department at American University in Washington DC. He is a leading expert on political violence. He is also a consultant for the Department of Defense on countering violent extremism. And then there is our very own Jesse Driscoll. Um, He's a political scientist here at GPS. Um, at UC San Diego. He is an expert um, on state building after civil war and on various dynamics associated um, with civil war, including how and why militias form. I have a special thank you to Jesse. He is the one who came up with the idea for this webinar. It would not have happened without him. So um, thank you, Jesse. I like I love all of you. I've known all of you for years. I could have very long conversations with all of you. I know how precious your time is And that taking an hour out of your time is a really great, great gift. So I want to thank you all for being here. I'm going to launch right in the format's going to be pretty simple. Uh, we're going to talk for about uh, 40 minutes. Uh, the goal is to make this a conversation amongst us. I really want to see what people have to say. I haven't given anybody any questions. They don't know what I'm going to ask. Um, they were asked not to prepare any notes or any um, formal responses. Um, they know so much that um, we'll just see what part of their brains they're going to share with us um, today. Um, You are welcome as audience members to send in questions. I can't guarantee that we will get to all of them, Um, but if you ask a really good question, I'm gonna try to, uh, to ask it. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of context about why we're talking about domestic unrest today. I think one of the big surprises for many Americans, some Americans, but probably not all Americans, Was that American citizens reacted very differently to COVID, not physically, not um, from a medical perspective, but in terms of what they how they reacted to it and what they thought the government response should be, based on whether politically they were on the left or on the right. Um, And one example, one very, very clear example of this was the anger. the right about government uh, governments the federal government and various state governments uh, shutting down businesses in michigan for example um, the michigan militia uh, went to the state house in uh, the capitol and they demanded entry they were given entry into the capitol despite the fact that many of them were openly carrying firearms um, and they demanded that the governor open up Um, the state. The government didn't accede to these demands, but it gives you a sense of how this particular issue has been politicized. So I'm going to start with Erica, and I'm going to ask a very quick question. Is what we're seeing, this response, is this a typical type of nonviolent response, nonviolent protest, or are we beginning to see something new
2: emerge? Good question, Barb, and thanks for convening us, and thanks to all of my dear friends and colleagues for being here. Um, So I've been reading this book by Frank Snowden called Epidemics in Society, and in that book he makes clear that uh, during every period of an epidemic, um, there have been varying social responses There have been people who resist restrictive measures, seeing them as either overbearing or um, uh, essentially allowing too much accretion of state power. And there have been those who have protested over perceived inaction, lack of public safety measures, and lack of ability of their governments to intervene effectively. So what I think we see here is in some ways representative of the processes that unfold in the context of epidemics, but I would say that it has its own American flavor um, because in this sense it is um, combining with the existing kinds of polarization that have been dominant over the past number of years, as well as um, real and sincere grievances over um, the inequalities that have long existed here and that are now being brought even more uh, into light with, with the, the effects of the pandemic having such unequal effects across our society. So um, it has a, a, a sense of continuity in terms of the pattern of, of uh, protests and counter-protests, but it also um, intersects, I think, with some of our own social problems that are unique to our time.
0: Yeah. So you can't talk about the response to COVID without talking about race. It's disproportionately affected African Americans and Latinos. They're the ones who are dying at much higher rates. Um, And and the irony there is that the people who are generally protesting um, are people who come from rural areas where that are less affected by it. They are almost exclusively white. Most of them are male. Um, And so I wanted to ask um, all of you, but I'd love to hear Christian's view on this, to what degree does race play a role? And do you think our president, President Trump, would have reacted differently if the pandemic had disproportionately affected rural whites, or let's just say whites, rather than members of minority groups?
3: I got something. I I mean, so I'll respond to the black things second. Um, So so one, I don't think we can talk about protests without talking about repression. So I I think those two are intrinsically connected. So I I can't kind of like accept the premise of the question. Um, And I don't know that it's nonviolent when people walk around with machine guns, loaded or not. So I I would question whether or not it's nonviolent. And so um, why aren't you seeing black folk upset? and out in protesting in in larger numbers, given the kind of dynamics, uh, I'd have two answers. One, we're used to dying disproportionately. There's a huge variety of different things that we've been assaulted with, and unfortunately, we break them up. So it's driving while Black, running while Black, going to the hospital while Black. Put that all together, it's suffering from racism and white supremacy. And those are not new. And unfortunately, we're still kind of dealing with that. A new generation has emerged to talk about police violence, but that goes back as well. I've seen. Reports from the early 1900s of the NAACP was had a report on black violence So that's that's also kind of similar and comparable in many ways And so we still see kind of the manifestations of that going on What I find interesting is your your, your trump question right would things be different if, this, if it was uh, rural white folks that were dying I'm like this gets back and you know, like everybody could chime in with this for uh, you know help me out with the data but um, it's like um I don't know that he's got a greater affinity with white working-class people or poor white folks than anybody Had I I thought that it was like it was disproportionately that white people were voting for him, which was kind of like the. the But is he is he more sensitive to them? I don't necessarily think he'd be any more sensitive to that community dying either, given kind of like where he emerges on the kind of uh, capitalist sensitivity spectrum for those that are suffering disproportionately from capitalism. I think that's a, a broader point.
0: Anybody else want
4: to jump in yeah I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it I guess I mean I uh, uh, I I think that the, the kind of rise of, of white working class identity is one of the more discouraging trends of the last of the last five years I think a lot of people attribute it to Trump um, and and I, I don't think that that's quite right I think that it's closer to the truth to say that he has really benefited from it but the idea that um, there are really a lot of people out there who are beginning to see themselves potentially as a class or as a unified group with special interests that ought to be taken seriously. Um, you know, I think a lot gets loaded into white supremacy um, uh, that, because of the history of race relations in this country and, and the, the idea that there's a, a large block of people that are at risk of losing their socially privileged dominant position um, uh, and, and, and with cause, think that that's going to happen and they're kind of are projecting the future onto the present. Uh, I, I think that that's a dynamic that has led to a lot of anxiety and and um, there's obviously a racial dimension to um, the American history of race relations. I don't need to get into it with you guys, but you're, um, or to the audience here, I mean, I assume that we're all educated about this stuff, but 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 it is discouraging. And I, I think that it, it might well be structural and, and difficult to, to undo trump trump i don 't think um, if, if, if there were uh, different demographics to the death, I think the incompetence of the government response in the opening stages would have been I think pretty much the same um, and and the um, you know but the the messaging and the um, uh, the, the kind of institutional response might well be different. It's a it's a tough counterfactual. We're all just speculating about that.
0: Yeah, Erica?
2: Yeah, just really quick, I wanted to kind of riff off something Christian said too. Um, first of all, I totally agree that just because nobody got killed uh, when Michigan militia members were occupying the statehouse doesn't mean it wasn't a violent event. It was yeah, definitely hear, hear. an armed takeover of a public building. Um, And those have been happening with increasing frequency over time in this country, um, not just during the pandemic. And um, since Christian didn't mention it, I just wanna call your attention to two of his research works that really help us understand what so many people are now acknowledging on social media and elsewhere about the double standard between how we represent certain events as nonviolent or violent, depending on the race of the people protesting and the race of the people policing them. And um, one of them is by Christian, Sarah Sewell, and I think David Armstrong about, it's called Protesting While Black. It's a really important piece that talks about the effects of, um, of the race of the, the protesters on the way the public sort of defines and understands the events and the level of repression um, against the protesters. And the other one is with um, Dave Armstrong, I think, and, um, and Rose McDermott, which is uh, uh, based on like a survey experiment that, that helps us understand that when the protesters are um, black and the police are white, um, that people are overwhelmingly supportive of repression against them, or, you know, violent repression, even when the, the uh, black protesters are, are, are using peaceful methods. Um, but that can become more complicated if the protesters are white or if they're mixed in race, in which case the public is much more confused about who's to blame. Um, and whether to label it as nonviolent or violent. So this also then gives us a little bit of an opening for understanding how important um, uh, it is for white people to stand with uh, black people when they're being assaulted uh, because it does change the the way that the public understands and narrates the nature of the conflict.
0: So that, Erica, that actually um, brings up a really good point. The protesters are almost exclusively white. Um, they are being given access to the State House. They are um, uh, basically being forgiven by our president. Um, the, the way that the government has responded, I'm going to characterize it as perhaps with kid gloves. Kid gloves. Um, what does that mean in terms of of where these, this movement goes, the alt-right movement goes. Does that mean that it's likely to be sort of steady state? Will that instead accelerate it? Are we more likely to see violence? Given how the government has responded, are we less likely to see violence? Um, so these groups are being treated in a very particular way and is it likely to embolden them or what effect do you think it's likely to have?
3: I'll jump in, although you directed that to her. Just, (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't don't wanna cut off Erica or anything. Um, Quick response is like, um, I I seem to be just in objecting to to Barb mode, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't know that I would narrow down the protest of these white militias and the open open the economy back up people, and say that that's the only contention going on. I think the the crazy response we see of protesters in Minnesota is in part a response of the context of COVID nineteen. So I think I think it's more like it's contention in America that's affected by this behavior. Um, it's uh, you know people are sick and tired of being sick and tired dynamic times 10 because of all these other kind of like daily kind of problems that they're having. So I think um, both the protest to it and the police response to the protest to it, despite not having direct implication, direct connections to no one was out there saying COVID-19 they're wearing masks and we've now been living with this for a couple of months. So I think that was kind of embodied within that. So I would definitely, I, I think I have a more encompassing view of the contention that is, that is relevant for discussion and notice those are black folk, and then you have white folks asking to open up, where black folks black folk clearly wish to open up, Latinos, anybody who's living marginally, right, and basically is not generating any cash whatsoever, I'm sure they wanna open up as well. And so it's interesting to see exactly how that's getting spun. Um, but um, I kinda wanted to not, not re, 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 recast the discussion, but um, anyone remember Bluestone and Harrison, deindustrialization of America? I'm like, that's the inflection point for me. The industrialization started, a whole bunch of people started losing steady jobs, and then they're just kind of like sitting in the economy and sitting within the nation, and we just kind of let that fester. And that's white, black, Latino, Asian, everybody, but how that got characterized within each community is interesting, and that has manifestations for the lack of interconnectedness that we're seeing now, because not everyone's seeing that as being an inflection point for why we're in the situation where, that we're in, and then exacerbated by COVID. I, I see COVID more as the kind of like, um, kind of like grand revealing behind the curtain, kind of like a Wizard of Oz kind of thing. Oh, and if you weren't paying attention, whoosh! That's, that's what's going on in America. And now we're kind of like looking around going like, wow, why, 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 why everyone's so vulnerable. Um, everyone's living paycheck to paycheck, what's going on? And that I, think is, that I think is a fascinating moment, but it speaks to which communities we're looking at and which ones we're seeing that are mobilizing which ones that are not mobilizing, because I put, I put the mutual aid kind of movement actually out there as much, if not more so, than some of this um, um, isolated, contentious things. And i like Erica to speak to the whole thing about like the size of these protests that I've seen. I'm just like, they look kind of small. And then the majority of the population still is kind of like compliant. So I'm just kind of like, um, I'm wondering if the news coverage of it didn't help exacerbate it as well, right?
2: Yeah, Just really quick, time. I wanted to speak a little bit to some of the the escalation question, and I also want to hear what Joe and Jesse have to say about these too but um, you know I, I can imagine a couple of different processes. The first is a process where um, that Joe has done research on, certainly, where there's state repression and then against you know what otherwise might be nonviolent protest. Um, by folks in, in general who are observing social distancing now, but are coming out in key moments to express dissent, and, and who will be, you know, potentially repressed, that that can sometimes create escalation effects, um, and there can be some escalation of violence in those contexts. Um, this is often how civil wars start. Actually, as, as the sort of precipitating events are an increase in nonviolent mobilization that's brutally repressed by the state, and then um, there's a small segment of people that think they must take up arms. I don't know that that's the context we're in in this country right now. Um, But the other one that is maybe closer to what we're in is where um, essentially uh, militias and um, kind of pro-government militias start to become more incorporated and organized by the state. You know, you, you said sort of President Trump forgave Um, the armed protesters, but I'd say he actually encouraged them, right? He had these um, tweets that were calling for the liberation of these countries from Democratic governors, Um, and so um, this is a a troubling trend that a number of people who have studied white nationalism, white supremacy, and the alt-right in the United States have been noticing and expressing concern about since, since Trump was inaugurated. Um, And so, you know, that I think is another process where you actually have kind of state cooptation of otherwise autonomous armed groups that then engage in different vigilante actions toward others in the country. And that then can also have escalation mechanisms. And the third kind of escalation would be outbidding, um, which could happen if there's much more competitive dynamics, say, between right and left, um, where people... Small kind of fringe movements think they have to outdo one another by starting to ramp up violence, and um, you know that's a process. For example, that Italy um, experienced during its democracy crisis in the 1970s and 1980s, um, that nearly brought down the Italian government um, numerous times. And so there there are some kind of uh, troubling precedents for the outbidding and the escalation of violence on both. Right and the left, but again, I I think we're the the, the second um, dynamic is the one that more people are worried about, in part because I think it can have more devastating effects on communities if they aren't equipped um, to um, to protect themselves and have no meaningful institutional safeguards for their rights. Let
0: me add, um, ask another question.
5: Can I jump in there?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, Joe. Um,
5: Yeah, uh, I mean, one thing I think we should um, highlight real quickly is just that these, I don't think these protests that we're seeing around the quarantine are all that novel. I mean, I think they're quite similar to what we saw in the Tea Party. Um, You know, there's nationalist rhetoric, anti-government rhetoric, pro-gun rhetoric, white nationalism, conspiracy theories. It's not all that new. What's new is the anti-quarantine piece, but that's just kind of like, you know, in a similar when you've seen a protest and you have a million different signs, anti-quarantine is one of those signs. Um, so in some ways, I don't see it all as that new. What, what I see is kind of, and it's not necessarily novel either, but it's troubling, is the fact that they're threatening violence. And you don't bring a gun to a protest and occupy a state building and then think that's nonviolent protest. That's, you know, by most definitions, that's terrorism. Um, you're, you're using violence to, you know, sort of push your political cause. Um, and whether you're just threatening it or using it, um, it's still kind of what, what most scholars would call terrorism.
0: So, Joe, do you think um, COVID or this particular crisis is acting as an accelerant for these groups? And it is a sort of a grab bag of groups on the right with, with different issues. Is it an accelerant? Is it or, you know, will things just kind of once, once a vaccine is around and people can go back to their normal lives, will it just go back to, you know, what it was?
5: I think there's always this this undercurrent within American society. Um, you know, we all, we have this tension that, you know, uh, Robert Putnam and other folks have talked about a sort of communitarian um, feelings in the United States versus more individual feelings. And there are folks who think this is the violation of their individual liberties and that all ties in with, with guns and what have you. Um, and I don't, so I don't think it'll ever go away. I mean, I think we'll always have this tension. It's always a question of kind of the proportion of people who are in this space and then the proportion of those people who are willing to use violence. And I think, I mean, what worries me and maybe this is a foreshadowing, but what worries me is what will happen kind of post 2020 election, because I think most likely that group is going to lose electoral power and, and what, what the the things that could happen post the election.
0: Okay. This is Jesse. Do you think Trump will lose the election?
4: I have no idea. (laughs) Um, And, and uh, I do share Joe's, anxiety, though, about regardless of who loses, um, the losers are going to be and um, mad. And I think that that's an existential concern for me at this point, to be honest with you. I want to add two points that I think are complementary with everything Joe said, which, which I completely agreed with. Um, the first is that if you, if you want to think about the scholars who have been doing kind of big think since Trump about global populism. Uh, Inglehart and Norris is at the tip of my tongue because I just taught it last night. You know, they, they draw attention to psychological variables about whether people, you know, all of these arguments about threat perception have cognitive antecedents, right? You know, so do people actually perceive their... Physical security is threatened, and do people perceive their economic security is threatened? We spend a lot of time on the COVID conversation, focused on the latter, the physical security, because black bodies are dying, are dropping, or or, um, or whatever, you know. When and then, are they black bodies or are they white bodies? Does it matter? The the conversation goes in a very predictable direction um, that links in with the police violence conversation and a lot of other things that we're comfortable about. I don't think that many people. Um, have really gotten their heads around just what a global economic depression is probably going to look like. Um, and if you want to think about the not just the physical security, which, you know, Inglehart and Norris talk about, but the economic insecurity, which is going to fall in the plate of whoever wins the election, leaving aside the anger of the losers, the economic problem of how to handle a tax and transfer system afterwards, um, I, I think it's just going to be a very difficult redistributive politics problem. And all of the emotions that get poured on top of that are like gasoline on a fire, but the fire is also real, uh, very real. And um, I, 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 think I don't want to repeat myself, but I, I think people have these concerns about what is coming in the future and they're projecting those concerns back onto the present. And so all this sort of slow moving resentment over status hierarchy stuff, that's, like a, that's, that's a glacial speed set of demographic transitions, which I think may cause white people anxiety, some white people, some anxiety. I, I, I'm not a specialist in this space. But the economic problems are going to be much more short-term relative to that.
0: And what are the implications of those economic problems, Jesse?
4: I think a lot of people are going to get kicked out of their homes. Don't you?
0: I, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of unemployment for a long period of time, and we're going to have um, much deeper poverty here in the United States. Yeah, and it's going to it's going to affect particular subsets of the population in ways that aren't easy to
4: fix, and are fairly easy to predict in advance.
0: Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. If I may. Um... What's what's kind of frustrating in many respects is um, that the condition of unemployment itself or worsening economic conditions for folks does not automatically lead to mobilization, right? Because first, individuals are kind of like, they're individualizing it, right? I can't get a job because I suck. I can't do this because of my personal situation. So we're very bad with kind of like that collective sense of getting an idea of kind of like why we're in the situations that we're in. Angela Davis had this interesting kind of like comment once where it's just like um, why are we all upset with people coming to this country when the United States government and the companies associated with it are responsible for devastating the economies in these places that people are coming from. So it's like we have no sense of this kind of like broader system and thus people can wallow in poverty for quite some time without taking any action and political scientists seem to be like surprised by it, but like you can go to Olson, you can go a bunch of different ways to kind of explain exactly why we don't have the mobilization, but there's this piece on like framing political opportunity structure that was like neglected in this, uh, I I forget the volume, whatever, but um, the whole point was like, you could have the political opportunity structure moving in a particular direction, but if it's not framed in a way that people are actually understanding it and ready to mobilize around it, it doesn't make a difference. It's just sitting there latent. And so I think we're kind of very much in this context where we're lacking a, an ability and a language to discuss the very economic conditions that people should be mobilizing around. That's why I like the, mobile, the mobilization of these kind of mutual aid societies. It's just like, like people are dying, let's stop it. It's like, I don't know what to call it. I don't know what's going on, but I need this, that, this. Now, most people have not heard of a mutual aid organization. Um, That's part because they're called a bunch of different things. And if you say mutual aid, then you're probably making some direct connections to like Kropotkin, which and most people go going like, who is that? And so there's all these things that are going on and we're not quite there, but if we can provide a language for people to kind of like understand and aggregate, that would be very helpful because a lot of stuff's gonna get worse, but we're not very good at trends. Like for example, I love kind of the Southern Poverty Law Center, but I'm like, they're so fixed on like, giving you what happens this year, where's the trend? You know, everyone's talking about our things getting worse. It's just like, I don't really want to download each year to piece it back together to then figure out the time series. Help us out.
0: So Christian, there also all of you, there there's all sorts of groups, subgroups in the United States that are suffering. They're suffering in similar ways, some of them different ways, others, um, and yet they're not mobilizing equally. And what we've really seen um, probably starting in in 2010 and then accelerating since 2016 is the the mobilization of of the right. So moving forward, um, do you anticipate this being met by more mobilization on the left from other groups? Why is the right mobilizing more? In fact, if you look at, at some of the trends, um, the left, the far left, extreme far left groups, including what used to be terrorist groups, have been declining significantly. Um, they were a much bigger factor. They were the dominant factor in the in the 70s, and now, now they're almost gone, being supplanted by the right. So when we're talking about inflection points and mobilization, um, you know, why is it that the right is mobilizing and these other... Um, groups that are that are suffering are not.
3: I mean, quick. I mean, my thing is um, Obama helped uh, devastate a lot of that mobilization because a lot of the mobilization that was going up into that administration were just like, we won, we're good. Let's go. Let's go relax. We don't need to do anything. Completely forgetting the like the the clue from the social movement literature is movements are good for getting things on an agenda. It's not good about talking about what policy looks like. It's not good on monitoring. It's not good in investigatory activities later or prosecution. And so movements need to be connected to these legal institutions and, and to lobby. I mean, all these things are interconnected. And so we're not seeing a movement because we're coming off the heels of eight years of demobilization. And it's hard to gear these things back up. Consider whenever anything happens with black folk, what do you do? They're, they're looking for anyone that was connected to King. And okay, who was there? Who was on the balcony? Who was in the movement? And like, they have no clue of what's going on. That's when Black Lives Matter came out. They're just like, who are these black people? They're just like, yeah, there's a bunch of other black people, too, that are mobilizing. Let's try to learn the new generation. Let's go back again to the NAACP, right? So it's like people are still trying to catch up. And so the mobilization needs to kind of reemerge in many respects and be rebuilt. Black churches have been devastated over the past like twenty 20 years in terms of folks having to move out of communities and and so that element or that cement for kind of getting people mobilized again is gone and I'm not quite sure about I mean Jennifer Earle could speak to this I'm not quite sure that the the electronic um, explosion of black people on black Twitter and so forth is leading to people in the street around anything else anything else other than policing that's the interesting thing, right So black people can protest about policing any other topic. I think that there's going to be some difficulties there because that's one of the things that we protested about a great deal, and thus the institutions are there, the rhetoric is there, um, the mobilization there, the clarity is there, the connection between protest and those activities. Other topics, a, a lot, a lot harder.
2: Erica, yeah. So I, I think that we've seen. I, I think Jeremy Pressman and I, and our crowd counting initiative, um, were able to, to. I think, reasonably argue that something like seven or eight of the largest single-day demonstrations in U.S. history have happened since 2016. So the left is not demobilized. (laughs) It is incredibly fragmented and out of institutional power. And so that's, you know, why it doesn't look like they're mobilized. But they're actually, there's tons of mobilization happening. As Christian said, mutual aid pods are one of the most interesting things in terms of substitution and adaptation of techniques of mobilization that have taken place. It's actually um, many people find it especially promising because developing mutual aid networks is often a way of building collective community organizational power that gives people much more resilience for longer term sustained uh, mobilization um, because it provides better channels for planning, training, preparation, and support when people are put in in jail or, uh, injured or taken out of the scene for, for some reason because they need to take a break or whatever. So, um, there's a lot that's going on that actually could conceivably build, um, some kind of meaningful capacity for long-term transformation. But, um, you know, there, like Christian said, there, the, the, my impression of the left over the past, um, you know, 10 years, is that there's been a real resistance to try to play an inside game and an outside game. It's sort of all outside game. Um, and uh, there's a lot of fragmentation. There's single issue groups. The, the left is many, many different hundreds of organizations, local, state, federal, international, with no kind of movement of movements or grand coalition. The right is incredibly disciplined and organized. And they have had one goal since really the 80s, which has been let's overtake every branch of government and make ourselves a permanent majority in the United States. It's in many different documents, and if if they they've sort of felt like if they can do that, if they get grassroots community support, that's how it's going to lift them into these elected positions and appointed positions. But once they're there, they don't need an outside game. They just stay the inside game and keep others out. And I I think that's part of the strategy. It's it's been explicit. Uh, so. You know, uh, I think the 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 question for the left then is how does this kind of movement of movements emerge, and try to protect what institutional access remains, uh, so that they can try to play the inside outside game.
0: So we um, are now in our period of questions from the audience, and and I have a whole bunch that I've been looking through, and I'm just gonna pick a few of them. Um, the first one. Um hold on. They've added um Hold on, sorry. Um I would like to hear any of the panelists speak to longer the longer-term potential for unrest once the easy targets for demonstrators ire, such as statewide stay-at-home orders disappear. If unemployment persists, the economy deteriorates further, and easy rallying points like stay-at-home orders aren't there to focus discontent, what do panel members think the trajectory of domestic unrest will look like?
3: Um, Jumping in quick, sorry. Go ahead, Christian, and then Jesse. Um, jumping in quick, I, I think partly it's a function of, um, again, right, I don't want to separate um, the protest from the repression part, from mobilization, from coercion, but um, it's in part a function of um, where people are and what types of um, activities that the specific states are engaging in, right? So um, I don't remember if anyone's paying attention to, at the state level, states were taking very kind of like, various states were taking very strong stances against different forms of mobilization. Um, and that's because they were either concerned with um, um, anti-drilling initiatives or they were concerned with different types of people from the left coming out on some other type of activity issue. And so there's amazing variation with regards to how uh, coercive the protest policing principles have been. And then there's different models at police at police stations. And so I think this is leading to part of the fragmentation, the difficulty in kind of like coming up with an overarching thing. We, do, we are seeing some variation with regards to how state authorities are setting up that kind of like... Um, That that pitch for for like different activists to kind of hit on um, and not seeing the broader picture. Um, That's why I'm like, uh, you know, we, we need to kind of settle on kind of like what that What the overarching issue is and the left has not been good about that since the devastation of these movements in the 60s and 70s and there's not been a coherent kind of like replacement for it since then.
4: Jesse so i mean this is this is speculative and but my suspicion is that it will continue to be personalized in terms of uh, the party that's out of power just attacking the president for you know re- kind of regardless of of the identity of the president. I think that it's easy to focus on this particular president as a uh, um, as a particular focal point, but that that plays into. I think a successful strategy and oftentimes it seems like we're walking into a trap. We on the left, the, what do I mean? I I, I mean that there's this narrative of contempt that I think is very prevalent in the Republican party, which, which suggests that um, liberal elites, like, like all of the six of us are actually not capable of articulating policy responses that fix the problem that the questioner asked. You know that we were very, very good at a kind of um, uh, magician's patter of explaining, you know, what people ought to be doing. But in terms of our behaviors, um, when we are in power, we don't do enough to actually help out the people who need helping. And that's a criticism that is is fairly potent. And if you if you watch um, uh, or listen to uh, right-wing media outlets. The idea that 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 um, you're being lied to is is um, by people who who have contempt for your values is is I think what we're actually up against. On and, and on, on the flip side of it, I mean, I think that we are all um, uh, we we have a reflective narrative of contempt for um, some of the policies and personalities on the other side. I think this is pretty difficult to break out of. Um, and I, I, I see it probably, um, uh, I I, 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 will, I will be, I'll be very pleasantly surprised if, if it, um, if it remains nonviolent. I think that something that, um, Erica said before that I really want to highlight is the possibility of outbidding. Um, and the, if you give this enough time, uh, extremes do like to play around with extremes. And so I, I just don't, know over a two-year period or a three-year period if the trends that we've been talking about over the last five years um, are, are, are are necessarily going to hold. I don't want to hog the mic anymore. I realize that that's kind of a,
0: um, Jesse, kind you of a can lot to say.
4: <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the least qualified person to be on this panel. I'm just happy to be here, to be uh, honest with y'all.
0: Oh, you always say <laughs> interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> And I just wrote down extremes like play around on the extreme. So I'm going to quote I stole that, that from
4: Steph Haggard, man. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm <laughs> I just, so I just, gotta, float, we- I just float around the internet repeating the last thing anybody ever
5: said to me. That's, that's, that's my Yeah, Joe,
0: thing. you want to hop in
5: here? Yeah, I want to just jump in for a second, which is we know that um, one of the structural factors that, um, you know, struggling economies tend to breed more right-wing violence. And, you know, as we see the, um, kind of as, as, Jesse was talking about and Erica, that we'll see potentially this um, dynamic where the right sort of becomes progressively more violent and then factions on the left respond and, and sort of counter, um, counter outbid. is not exactly outbidding, but sort of use violence in response. And those escalation dynamics worry me. Um, I don't think probably no one on this panel thinks that we're headed for a civil war. No country as strong as ours is likely to ever have a civil war. But I think what you can see is kind of more extreme violence a la you know, Oklahoma City or, or events that are just much more brutal than we, we would have seen in kind of normal times.
3: I mean, not to not to deviate from, um, from being a political scientist for a minute and our focus on government and institutions, but I'm like, capitalism is the problem. It's been the problem and will continue to be the problem. And so, right, these little militias, okay, let's say they get exactly what they want. Okay, things open back up. We're still going to have the ridiculous amount of inequality we have in the country that is completely underestimated and folks suffering from things faster or slower. I mean, like, there's a bunch of research that shows that that African-American treatment within hospitals had been consistently negative before, before 2008, before this current crisis. I'm just like, okay, they're getting misdiagnosed. They're not diagnosed at all. They're not, they're not receiving meds because of perceptions of like, you know, super strength and all this other craziness, right? So we have all these kind of activities that are just being like, uh, subject to different um, groups. And so I'm like, even if the right did get everything that it wanted, which is not clear what that is, they're still gonna have this fundamental problem of inequality and poverty to deal with and how are they addressing that? And so the left had their shot, they couldn't address it either. So I'm just like, no it's fundamentally getting at what I think is at the core of this thing, which is capitalism is this like screwed over tremendous amount of population and those folks are not going to like basically recover. They could be distracted, um, And that we could talk about various things and different policies that might affect some things on the margin. But unless we're going to talk about fundamentally how we're going to redistribute some stuff then these folks are going to suffer and continue to suffer and largely in silence.
0: So this gets exactly at a question that we received from one of our former students. And the question is, why are these times not producing coordination and consolidation against hyper capitalist system that produces the crucial inequality in terms of power and wealth in the US that led to disproportional impacts of COVID-19? The question is, why is it not producing more coordination? Uh, Jesse?
4: Well, first off, I want Erica to answer the question. Um,
0: (laughs) She raised her hand. She's she's right after you.
4: Okay. Um, So I would answer the question in the following way. Um, I think that the left wing and the right wing of parties in, in this country Uh, neither actually trusts the government to do tax and transfer honestly for different reasons. And I think that those reasons are actually pretty well rehearsed if you, if you want to get into them, you know, on one side you talk about regulatory capture and on the other side, you talk about um, structural grievances that never go away, no matter what we do. And when Christian said before the left kind of had their shot, I think there's a lot loaded into that sentence. And so my impression, I don't watch a lot of Fox news, uh, you know, but, my impression is that they don't actually regularly make a racial based grievance statement. What they say is that our listeners out there are the working poor. And that just happens to coincidentally be working white poor, but that's a coincidence, right? It's the left that brings race into it. And then the right gets to ridicule that as saying, well, I'm not a Nazi. I'm not a racist. I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to, 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 to keep up with, uh, to keep up with, 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 uh, health insurance costs or, or whatever else. And the the failure of both parties to actually improve the lives of the, you know, the median income in this country hasn't budged since the 70s. And and it's hard to know what policy levers we would pull to change that. And that's just leading to a lot of anger. So um, that makes coordination difficult. <laughs> like the fact that, that the elites don't actually have a um, uh, a clear answer to that question on the left, I think is, is a source of um, exposure to nihilists on the right.
0: Well, we're hoping Erica has an answer to that.
2: Well, I just want to say um, a couple of things. One is that there has been some um, attempts to reimagine what global economy that would be fair and just might look like uh, over the past 10 years. And uh, in some ways, the Occupy Wall Street uh, actions were a a sort of confluence of people who wanted to have that conversation. I would argue that global public awareness of inequality as something that is a household conversation almost everywhere now can be attributed to the fact that there was mobilization that was global and that was persistent and called attention to these issues in a way that no established political parties or insurgent political parties can ignore. Um, But you also have to be able to imagine what the alternative system is uh, and be able to articulate it with clarity. And um, it's always, uh, you you know, it's always not a great day when you're quoting Zizek, but um, he did say something once that I totally agree with, which is that um, we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine the end of capitalism. We just, we, we haven't quite put to paper a compelling alternative that solves the problem without creating a more problem on top of it. um, That, that sort of time hasn't tested yet. And so I think it's in the works. I think that, um, you know, divide and rule has been the way that working class solidarity has been broken uh, over the past hundred years. Labor organized, labor organizing unions have been busted. They're weaker now than they were. I think there's half as many people in unions today as there were, Uh, 30 years ago, you know, it's, it's part of the way that the system works. But one other thing quickly, I just want to say on the last point about the the sort of um, predicted rise in domestic unrest, I want to say, it's really dangerous um, for us, as all of you have thought about, I'm sure, to speculate on the rise of violence, because that can initiate security dilemmas. So, if I start talking in a way that expects violence to increase um, and uh, others begin to expect violence to increase, then people start acting like violence is going to increase. And that means they start to engage in behaviors that look like self-defense to them, but to other people look like really offensive, dangerous, um, reckless, violent activity. And that can then lead other people to try to defend against that violence themselves, and then others interpret that as Uh, as directly threatening to them. And so um, uh, kind of what I think is really crucial is to make it an imperative for those of us who study uh, contention uh, to make sure that people are aware of the fact that violence is not the only way that people engage in dissent. There are many other realistic alternatives for how people can push their issues forward collectively and effectively um, without initiating these security dilemmas, even under very difficult conditions. And so to the extent that those types of alternatives can become more common knowledge, we can break out of security dilemmas, but, uh, but not if we only think of violence as the only way people mobilize.
0: So oh, I've saved the most important question for last, and it also happens to coincide with one of the questions we've gotten from our uh, participants. Um, and the question is this. this. Um, could you suggest ways that people and communities can work to deescalate conflict in this country and polarization? And then the related question from one of our listeners was, what should donors and philanthropists do?
5: Well, I think one thing to do on a micro level is there's so much misinformation um, that runs around and there's, you know, conspiracy theories on both the right and the left. I mean, I spend most of the time at a micro level with my family, uh, just dispelling the things that they're saying just that are factually inaccurate and are conspiracy theories and trying to offer them alternative, like, you know, this is fine that you feel this way, but this isn't based on any facts and here's actual what's going on in the situation. Um, And I know that doesn't necessarily uh, solve any problems, but at a very micro level to try and get people to have a basis to start a conversation.
0: And I I actually want to get in on this. So um, there's a a guy named Eric Liu, and he used to be a speechwriter for Bill Clinton back in the 90s. And he's basically spent his career um, talking about power who wields power? Um, how do you understand power? Um, and he has, he's he's created what he calls Citizen University to, to rebuild civics and an understanding of civics and an understanding of power here in the country. And he just wrote a book called You're More Powerful Than You Think, which um, makes a really important point um, that if you don't understand um, how power is distributed here in the United States, and who has it, and how it works. By definition, you're giving your power away. Um, and I think um, one of the potential ways that that individuals, um, or at, at least at the individual level, that you can roll back the the polarization and the tension um, is is to simply understand. Um, how decisions are made and who makes them and then become involved. Um, and and that it starts at the very local level um, and then um, you think about ways you can scale that up. So that, that's that's my one interjection.
3: Erica? Two, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Christian. Um, the two things I was gonna mention was um, in terms of like Dealing with the polarization issue. I think um, individualism is the virus, we need to start to kind of like reformulate how we're thinking about stuff. I mean, like, when I hear about kind of like how um, Places like Norway and Norwegians were coming together to address certain types of problems and thinking about the kind of like individualistic orientation we had towards you can not tell me what to do. I'm not wearing this damn mask. Um, You can't tell me I can't do this. You can't tell me I do this. I'm just like, there's no sense of collective and it's weird, right, because the nationalism is about a kind of collective, but it's a, a certain group that's being kind of like invoked. So that was the thing there. With regards to funding, I'm just like, I think people need to start um, funding at more of the kind of stuff on thriving. I think that literature is, even if bad stuff happens, thri- thriving is, is like one of the best things that you could try to do flourishing counteract some of the negative activities, but we need to know more about how it functions and in what ways it functions in different locations. And then civil strategies of engagement, I think are something that people need to fund. We just don't have enough, we don't have enough resources dedicated towards understanding. I mean, I'm not really a fan of VDEM. I'm sorry to say less publicly, but I'm just like, but one thing they have done is listed all the different ways that one could engage in the political system. And I'm like, okay, so I'm like, how do we engage in all these different ways? People don't really know that they just think that I vote, I'm done. I've signed a petition, I'm done. I go to a protest, I'm done. I'm like, well, okay, those are three of three activities of the whole repertoire of things that you could do in terms of engaging. And we don't really know exactly what leads to that kind of like robust sense of like political engagement. So if someone wants to fund something, they need to fund that rather than funding some of the stuff that they're funding now. Erica? Yeah,
2: just on the first, um question about pathways out of polarization. I I have to say I'm much more familiar with the literature on how we get polarized than how we get out of polarization. And my sense of the how we get out of it uh, literature is that there are basically two pathways. One is that um, there are kind of sudden and decisive moves to the center. Um, And the more common form is that there's a decisive victory by one or the other side um, that then basically realigns Uh, the system. And so um, I don't know. um, But what I would say is that if everyone in the United States thought of the most vulnerable person they knew and voted in that person's interests, we'd probably live in a much different country. And um, so that's one way to think about it if you're trying to be part of the solution. Um, In terms of the the donors and philanthropists, I love this question. uh, And thank you for asking it. I think um, there are a couple of things that um, feel to me to be urgent uh, matters of undercapacity in our country. One is um, training and rapid response and uh, conflict resolution and conflict de-escalation. The other is more for mutual aid networks. That is exactly what Christian was talking about, uh, people showing up for other people. Um, and building their capacities to do that, especially in contexts where we have to be protecting ourselves and others against the spread of a virus. Um, And then the third is um, convenings of people who have long been doing this work, um, who haven't had a chance to sort of get together, take a break, and think through how they want to proceed collectively in this sort of movement or movement environment. Like, What would a a large-scale coalition um, to... Uh, build a more prosperous and fair society look like uh, who can be part of that conversation? What can they bring to the table and how are we going to proceed well beyond the 2020 elections? Because that's not going to fix it.
0: Joe, Jesse, uh,
4: I, I, I hate to have to follow that, um, but I'll, I'll try. Um, uh, I, I want to echo the call for um, uh, nonviolent uh, intervention first responders, um, the people with particular kind of conflict resolution training who are also in a first responder um, capability. I mean, I think that would be um, uh, a, a resource for a donor to consider funding. On the question of de-escalation, um, I, I think that if you want to think about a silver lining of, of, of COVID, it, it, it has had an obvious effect of changing the unit of analysis for a lot of people to the family unit. And I think that that might be, um, it runs in a slightly different vibe than the solidarity push that Christian is, um, uh, you know, articulating. And I, I, I see a need for, for both sides. I think they can be complementary, but you know, one of the, the arguments that if you want to think about a fundamental problem being the, Perception of white working class Americans as a group into itself that is falling behind in a status hierarchy. The solution to that is actually straightforward. It's to reimagine America in a way that um, it, that it's there's like 70 different groups or 100 different groups, and it's just too cognitively complicated to figure out who is who. And um, I think that COVID could actually contribute to that. You know, that all of a sudden, because um, you know everyone you know within their own micro bubbles can see. Um, how much diversity there is, you know, even at the neighborhood level, I think that that might have a a silver lining to it somehow. And that's, that's a slightly different direction than I think Christian was pushing it. Um, I think there's an upside, perhaps, to individualism in all of this.
0: Joe, you're welcome to the last word, if you would like it.
5: I'll I'll just say something quickly, which is, I think, uh, to get this de escalate De-escalation. I think what needs to happen also at the micro levels, like I was saying before, and that happens through persuasion. It'd be nice if there were more research on how we persuade people, Um, you know, and a lot of this is occurring via social media. I know that um, one of the splits we've been talking around in, in America is rural versus urban, and I think that's where a lot of this divide in this particular issue is um, and how do we in one situation explain to the other situation what are uh, you know what, our, what we're looking at and then how we can persuade them that it's useful to think about it from this perspective?
0: Well, we are out of time. Uh, let me just say thank you again to all of um, our panelists. Uh, this was really interesting. I was taking notes. I wish we could uh, kind of go off uh, into uh, the bar next door and Continue many of these uh, lines of conversation, but we can't. Um, I want to thank the people who joined us um, and feel free again to email us if you have additional questions or, uh, you know, just to say thank you. (laughs) Um, And that's it. Thank you, Wendy, for organizing this and um, stay safe, everyone. Thank you.